Hi, I'm Pat Kelly. And I'm Peter Oldring, and we're the hosts of This Is That. Are you kidding? For over a decade, we were radio's go-to source for completely fabricated news. You must be joking me. And now, we're back in podcast form. We've selected some of our favorite stories from over the years and put them in one convenient location. Sugar in the tap water. Bilingual dog park. Charging to see wildlife. This Is That, coming soon on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. There's this moment in my conversation with Anthony Shim where he talks about why he makes films, how he's really just trying to make his family proud. Anthony came with his family to Canada from Korea when he was just a kid, and he'll tell you the story about showing his brilliant new film, Rice Boy Sleeps, at a festival in Korea and how the audience reacted. That's coming up. Plus, Ariana Saeed and Fazila Amiri came into our studio. Ariana is one of the biggest music stars ever out of Afghanistan. I've heard people call her the Celine Dion of Afghanistan. But she'll tell you the incredible story of being smuggled out of the country when it looked like her life was in danger. And they'll both tell you about the new documentary about the struggles women face making music in Afghanistan. That's coming up. I'm Tom Power. You are listening to Q. So I, I know we're going to talk about a film today, but I, I wanted to start with some music just to set the scene. What you're hearing right now is the frontman of the Icelandic band Sigur Rós Jónsi from his album called Rice Boy Sleeps. Anthony Shim, the director from Vancouver, listened to this album so much while he was making his film that he named the film after it. Rice Boy Sleeps is the story of So Yun, a Korean single mother raising her son David in Vancouver after her husband dies by suicide. And the sort of liminal space between assimilation and tradition they both live in as they settle into their new life in Canada. It's a really beautiful film. It's sad. It's kind of funny. And it's doing really well. It just won Best Canadian Film at the Toronto Film Critics Association Awards, which is the largest film prize in Canada. Anthony Shim came into our studio, and we had a really nice conversation about immigration, about assimilation, about choosing your English name, and about going back to Korea with the film about his family's experience leaving Korea. But we started out talking about music. When I start writing a script, a new script, I, I, I like to pick an album or, you know, sometimes like the album comes first, the music comes first. And I go, oh, like something about the sound, something about this feeling, you know, is resonating with me. I'd love to make a film that kind of like almost like accompanies that music. Um, and I was really into that album at the time. And I started working on this script. And, you know, early on, it was just ideas and scene ideas or characters and stuff like that. And. And because it is inspired by my own experiences, I just I had a plethora of ideas, but no real story or focus. Um, so I thought, you know, maybe if I gave it a title, I'll be able to find some kind of focus uh, on the story. And and so I just I, I liked the way the words "Rice Boy Sleeps" looked. I liked the sound of it. I I, I liked the album cover um, visually, tonally. Like I thought it was accurate to what I was going for. And so I was, you know, Rice Boy Sleeps, here we go. And then, and then as time went on, the storyline started to sort of meld with the title and it just stuck. 
it's a funny thing that the film sort of is, is not your own story. It's not the story of you, but it does mirror your own experiences a little bit. Uh, I mean, yes, it does mirror my experiences. I mean, I would say, I would say it's like there are specific scenes, there are specific uh, events that occur in the, in, the, in the story that are based on things that happened to me. But then really what is autobiographical is the, the character's um, emotional journey, the boy's emotional journey throughout the story, throughout the film, and also the relationship between the mother and son. That's, I would say that's what's most autobiographical about the film. So your story is that you came to Canada when you were how old? Um, I moved to Canada. I moved to Vancouver Island when I was eight from Korea. And then in my teens, I grew up in Coquitlam, B.C., um, and, uh, that was a time that was very different than now in regards to the population. It was, you know, especially in Vancouver Island, it was, it was predominantly white Canadians. And, um, I was the only Korean boy, the only Asian student in the whole school. And, um, with that came, you know, certain interesting challenges, um, that much of ended up in the movie. Help me understand that. What, what do you mean? I don't want to say I was like the I was like a victim. I'm not I'm not going to sit here and say I was like a victim of racism and you know. But you know, I, like I was teased. You know, and there were there were many jokes made throughout my childhood. There were um, there were times where I did get into trouble because I would lash out and you know. Um, but then as time went on, I I, I found a way to um, assimilate, and I and I found that. Um, one of the ways that I, I started to fit in was through jokes, through making, you know, through making kids laugh. Um, because I realized if I can make a joke about myself first, make fun of myself first, make fun of someone else first. Um, and usually I wasn't making fun of other kids. I would usually make fun of teachers. Yeah. You know, then, then if I could get kids to laugh, then the attention would come off of me and they wouldn't make fun of me. Yeah. I know that one. I did that one too. Yeah. I know that one. So, yeah. you know, I, yeah. like I did that, I started to figure out how to make friends that way. And then I was also, then I got good at sports. And I realized, oh, if you're good at sports, yeah, it's like the easiest way to like fit in with the cool kids. It's the cheat code. Yeah. And um, that was kind of how I navigated my my way through through school in this story. Um, it's a really, it's a, it's a beautiful film. It's a really touching film. There's some moments though that made me laugh. Good. I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, you know, I almost yeah. feel like apologizing to you, but for the really, like, I love the scenes surrounding English names. You have one too, right? Like, you, when did you when did you start getting called Anthony? Grade three when I moved to Canada. What? Tell me the story. Do you mind? <clears throat> no, no, no. Um, I so yeah, we moved to Canada and um, first day of school. Um, I mean, all, I'm already petrified, and um, we're doing the 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 the, the what do you call it the, when the School, the attendance, attendance. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, it's, you know, it's all like Billy, you know, Jenny, Stacy, and then my Korean name's Myung Bo. It's spelled M Y U N G B O. And it's, and the pronounce, and it's, you know, it's difficult to pronounce. Like, I, I don't hold it against anyone. And it was just butchered. Oh, yeah. It was butchered. Yeah. And it, kids thought it was the funniest sounding thing ever. And, that became like the start of my 
life in Canada. That was day one. No, you should laugh. It's funny. It is, it, it's because I'm it's not a the rough, only, rough. Yeah, stern. it's yeah. it's so it's so tragic. It's funny, and you know I think it's funny. I you know, and then the teacher was really sweet, and she figured, oh maybe if he got a name that was easier for the kids to pronounce, then things would be a little easier for for him. And so she told my mom, she said, you know, I've thought about this. And my mom goes, we don't know any names. The only names that I knew of was Michael Jordan and the Simpsons. And I was told the Simpsons was not an option for me. And, and so then she recommended, she wrote down four names for us to choose from. She said, here are four names that I recommend. And it was, as, as it mentioned in the movie, it was Richard, Kevin, Stanley, um, and Anthony. Anthony was the fourth option, was our fourth choice out of the four. Because Korean people don't like to pronounce T-H. Right. You didn't want to be Anthony? Oh, God, no. Because it was so hard to spell. Or it's so hard to pronounce. Yeah, of course. Um, and the concept of being, the idea of being called something that is completely foreign to me has no meaning to me. That, has no, that I have no relationship attachment to. Just didn't sit well with me at that age. But, you know, didn't have a choice. And when did you come around on it? Or did you? I still don't like my name. You know, I still... Like, it's, it, it, is, it causes so much trouble in my <laughs> life to, to this day. Because, you know, then it's like, you know, so many, so many Asian people struggle with this, which is, you know, like you deal with anything that has to do with like government ideas. Oh, stuff. yeah, of course, of course, of course. Like of course. I, I, I essentially have three different names that circulate around you right. know, everything I do. So right. things don't match. Right. You I, know, I've been denied, of, denied, you know, boarding a flight once. Because your name was, you went up as Anthony? And... Yeah, because a production uh, uh, sent my flight ticket as Anthony for Anthony's gym and, and my passport says a Korean name. You know, so it's crazy. It's crazy. It's a funny scene. Those scenes are funny. So where, where your character, your character, I'm going to say, David, is, you know, a child sort of being you and getting to choose a name, getting to choose an English name and wants, wants to call himself Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is not And then there's, yeah, there's that other scene where um, the, the women who are largely like immigrants from other countries who came to Canada are having that conversation. Like, should we call him Richard? Should we call him Stanley? And they're, and they're laughing and laughing and laughing. Maybe we go with Stanley then. Huh. I like Stanley too. Stanley is my husband's name. Your husband's name is Stanley. Mm. Yes. Your husband's name is Stanley Park. Yes. <laughs> we didn't know. <laughs> Was it important for you to bring some, I guess, levity or humor or something funny to, to this story? Were those scenes important to you? Well, funny enough, this when I first started out, Writing the story, the script, it, it was a comedy. Really? I wrote it because I, I, I found these experiences that I had to be so absurd looking back on them that I thought they were actually humorous. And so the early drafts, um, you know, a friend of mine referred to it as the Korean super bad. Right. Because it really centered around the boy's relationship with his friends and his, upper, you know, his childhood experiences. And, and it was all meant to be quite humorous. Um, and then as time went on, as drafts went on, it started to find a, 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 a different tone and a, a, a different storyline. Um, so because I started from that place, it was just that I never deviated entirely from it. Yeah. Um, and I actually thought the film was going to be 
more funny than people are now taking it. Um, you know, people talk so much about how sad the film is, and I go, "Oh, well, I, I mean, I thought I, I thought it was more funny than that." But it is a sa- it is quite it is sad. sad. I mean, I'm not going to deny that, but yeah. but um, yeah, I just I think I think you know that the the, the absurdity and, and the the tragedy of it. I just think they go hand in hand. It's it's just a it's a it's a real fine line between tragedy and and comedy. So I should say, you didn't just write and direct Rice Boy Sleep. You acted in it, too. So when you were getting interested in film, were you interested in being in front of the camera, behind the camera? I never really thought about it like that. I just didn't. I did, I've always loved movies. I grew up watching movies. Um, I grew up loving theater. I grew up and reading plays. And um, I just never knew what I just didn't understand how a film got made. I didn't even understand what the role of a director was. I never thought that there was anyone behind the camera. I just thought it was, you know, whoever you see on screen are the people that make movies. Right. And so then um, I I stumbled upon acting because my mom wanted me to uh, be less introverted. You were still pretty quiet. Yeah, I mean, this was pretty early on. Yeah, yeah. she wanted me to, you know, I, I wasn't very good at speaking in front of people. I, I, did, I, did, I didn't do well around um, groups of people, more than, you know, like four people. Um, and because my mom actually was, um, she did theater in college and she fell in love with it. She fell in love with acting. She fell in love with the performing arts. And, and she thought, and, and she always encouraged me to, to take part in, you know, um, in everything. You know, I played musical instruments. I played sports. I took art classes. I, you know, um, and she thought theater would be a an interesting way for me to challenge myself, get out of my comfort zone. And I did, and I took to it immediately. And there was something so liberating about being on stage and being able to express myself through words, through emotion through you know my body and it just felt so natural um and that just led to one thing after another and and just acting wasn't quite enough i i loved moving bodies around on stage did you do smallville around this time was was that the first role you did You did Smallville. I did. I did do Smallville. That was my first acting, professional acting job ever. I was, uh, was it 18 or 19? Um, That was like, it's life changing. That that blew my mind when that happened. Did you mean, did we we hook up? Uh, no. You were thrown in the back of a van by men in black. Damn. (laughs) I thought I drank a lot last night. So that must have been something for someone who doesn't know how the sausage gets made. Well, then I started to see how, how, how things are getting made. Um, and it kind of broke my heart because it wasn't, the, it wasn't as magical as I imagined <laughs> it to be. It felt like a construction set. <laughs> and I thought, and I loved that show as well. That was my favorite show growing up. I was a big Superman fan as a kid. Right. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to be an actor on the show. And it's going to be, it's, it's just going to feel like magic everywhere, yeah. you know? And, and, uh, no, it, I mean, you know what a film set is like. It's just a lot of C-stands and lights hanging and, and, and really rough people. Yeah, pulling cable and pulling eating, cable, yeah. eating carrots, you know, yeah, carrot sticks, and, you know. Um, and I wasn't sure if that was 
for me when I did that. But then I lo- so I did I really um, committed myself to doing theater. So my my best friends and I was sort of theater company and and just I directed and did acted in theater for a lot of years and um I wanted to make films. You know, I want to be a filmmaker. I, I think I can do it. I, and I you know you, it's the saying of like you got to fake it till you make it. Yeah. And I just and I just went around saying that I could do this thing and I you know and that I could be good at it. I heard the story and I love this that your mom was reading drafts of Rice Boy Sleeps as you were writing it and she helped form this really beautiful scene that your character is a part of. Do you know about Korajang? Have you heard? No. Tell me about, tell me that story. Tell me about the input your mom gave you. Yeah. Um, I had ended, I had, in one of the drafts, you know, I decided to write that the characters decide to go visit the, you know, the final location and that they would climb up this mountain. So I'd written that into the script and I was trying to find, um, I was trying to make, find meaning in that. And I was trying to figure out, you know, why they're doing what they're doing. And, and, and because at the time I was doing a lot of research about, uh, Korean history, um, uh, Korea, traditional Korean music, art, paintings, whatnot. And, um, my mom knew this and she, I was at her place and she said, you know, I, I watched this performance online of, uh, uh, it's a thing called Pansori, which is sort of like Korean opera almost. And it was about the story of Goryeojang, which is the story that Soyoung tells to Simon. Um, and so watch this performance and it's all singing and it's devastatingly beautiful. It's incredible. And I, and I watched it with my mom and I said, what is the story? And she explains, she goes, Korijang is the story. It's like, it's an old folk tale that, that um, Korean people have been telling for a long time back in the day. We don't know if it's actually true. Like, we, I mean, there's, there's now evidence that it actually didn't happen. It was just, it was a folk tale that was told yeah, for whatever reason um, over the years. But nonetheless, um, it's, it's a story about how when families were so short on food that they were in danger of starving to death, sons would carry their father, you know, aging father or mother on their back, and they would take them up to top of this mountain where the elderly would be taken, and they would leave them there, and they would be left there to die. And this story is about the son who lies to his very old and very sick mom and tells her they are going to look at the flower in the mountain. And then the child, the son would come back to the town and go on about his life. And it's, you know, it's all um, in order to, you know, make sure that his offspring survives. Mm-hmm. Um, and the story is that as, the, as they're climbing up, you know, the son tells the mother that um, we're going to go look at the flowers up on the mountain and she's going and she catches on as they're going that she knows where she's going. She knows where her son is taking her. But she doesn't say anything. Instead, she pick off the branch. No, this is not a leaf, but pine. Pine cones? No. And so she starts plucking pine needles. and dropping them 
behind her. And the son thinks she's just, you know, she's senile, doesn't think much of it. He takes her up, lays her down and goes, just hang tight. I'm going to go around the corner and I'll be right back. I'm going to bring you the flowers. And then he, he heads down. And as, as the night gets darker, he, no, he starts to get lost, but then realizes there are these pine needles on the ground. And that's when it all comes to him that, oh, that's what his mother was doing throughout that whole trip. She had been laying these pine needles so that when he's returning back home, that he wouldn't get lost. And so I heard that story and, and you know, immediately I started biting my lips, preventing myself from, you know, sobbing in yeah. front of my mom. Yeah. And this story just really stuck with me. It must have been meaningful to you, especially that your mom gave you the story. Like that must have been meaningful. To it was. It was. Thanks, mom. Yeah. It was, it was incredible. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. That it just, it just meant so much. And then, then that's when the ending just totally made sense. The more you hear from Anthony Shim, especially if you get to see this film, Rice Boy Sleeps, you realize what a love letter it is to his mother. Something that gets a bit complicated. You'll hear that in the second part of our conversation. More with Anthony Shim coming up. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favorite song in his entire catalog, Here, There and Everywhere. Listen to season two of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. There's obviously personal ambition and, and there's ego involved, but I just, I feel like at the end of the day, I just, I'm just trying to make my mom and dad proud. I love the honesty there that, yeah, there's artistic expression and all that stuff, but on some level, aren't we just trying to make the people we love proud of us? I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. And you're in the middle of my conversation with the filmmaker Anthony Shim. And we're talking about his film, Rice Boy Sleeps, which is being called one of the greatest Canadian films of the year. It's a film about a young boy named David and his mother, whose name is So Yun, who immigrate to Canada from Korea. And that's an experience which, in, in the first part we talked about this, like very loosely mirrors Anthony's own life. So Anthony told the story, and I wanted to make sure you heard this. Anthony gets to take the film to Korea to screen at the very prestigious Busan Film Festival. And he's feeling a lot of pressure. And the way he describes the audience's reaction and his reaction to it, you have to hear this. Here's more of my conversation with Anthony Shim. How did it feel for you to show that film in Busan? And how did it go over? We were all petrified. (laughs) Because... In Korea, um, whether it be film or TV shows that have to do with Koreans in foreign countries made by foreigners, don't do that well often. You know, it doesn't resonate with Korean audiences. And for me, if this was not, if this was rejected by Korean audiences, I don't know how I would have bounced back from that. That that would have been, that would have been devastating. And, uh, and we go and, and um, 
the screenings sold out, I think in like 10 minutes, all three screenings. So like, okay, well, at least people are interested and curious to see it. And we go and, you know, packed house. And as we're watching the film, you know, before that we had screenings at TIFF and Vancouver. It's, you know, home court advantage. (laughs) And especially Vancouver, like everybody in the audience are, you know, I'm connected to in some way and there's so much love and support. And all the jokes, you know, that have to do with the 90s references, uh, pot references, like people are laughing their butts off. And it's going over so well and it's vocal and it's like, it just, like you can hear it. You're like, okay, this is going well. In Korea, silence. Whole movie, not a not not a chuckle. We get like one, like an hour and fifty minutes into it. How are you feeling when I'm dying? I'm dying. <laughs> I'm looking around, going like, you know, like bits where I think it's funny. Like what happened? I go like, I look around, like nothing. I'm like, oh my god, people hate this. Movie ends. No one applauds. People don't move. And and then a bunch of people in the front that I, I later found out there were um, people who were like part of the festival press and people who had to get to another screening, you know, like 80 people walk, walk out, out like during the credits. Everyone else, they're just sitting there, not not clapping, nothing. And I'm going, oh, God, oh, God, I, I can never come back to this country again. And then I later learn that's just how audiences in Korea are. It, it's people don't applaud during the credits because it's like... To them, the credits are part of the movie. Right. And so they, they were saving the applause until we got on stage for our Q&A. And did they? And they did. And then once we started doing the q and, and because, uh, like, we don't, Korean people don't express their emotions out loud in public so comfortably as, you know, North Americans do. Yeah. Even the bits that were funny, they were suppressed it. Yeah. People, you know, we had some friends in the audience. They were like, oh, no, no. People were crying very quietly and would just, you know, just like subtly wipe their tears. And then it was when we got into the Q&A, that's when we realized, oh, people are digging this. How did and you know? Because of what they were saying. They they were. What were they saying? That they loved it. And, well, and then it was more so afterwards. We got mobbed. For autographs, like that was that was a new thing, and then and then there was like a fan club called the Rice Girls that started like immediately after, um, and on the second screening it was like more people. We started seeing signs in the audience, um, insta- like social media started to go crazy. Um, you know, there were people that were coming up to me like like I, I got tickets to all three screenings. Like, um, and what does that mean to you? Given that you were petrified about bringing that film back to Korea. It means a lot. It means for me to then, for me who grew, who was born and raised in Korea, raised in Canada, and then for me to go back with something that I created from here and that they embrace it and that they support it and, and, and celebrate it, it, it had, it's meaningful in a way that I'm not even sure I fully understand yet um i feel like it honestly i think i mean everyone has their own thing right like why do i work hard why do i try to be successful at what i do um 
there's obviously personal ambition and, and there's ego involved. But I just, I feel like at the end of the day, I just, I'm just trying to make my mom and dad proud, you know, for the sacrifices they made. Um, I'm trying to make my, you know, aunts and uncles proud. I'm trying to make my grandparents, you know, who are no longer with us, but I'm trying to make them proud to feel like, you know, I I devoted my life to something um, and that I am, I am now successful in it um, for what, you know, whatever strength or pride that gives them, like, that's why I do what I do, I think, ultimately. And so it's one thing to be doing well in Canada for, for, it to travel back home, yeah. that became real. Yeah. That became like, that's when people finally went like, oh. What did your mom say? My mom? I mean. If you, if you try, if you're thinking about, like, I want to make her proud. What did she say? I never told her that. I mean, I've never said like, I'm doing this. No, no, no. But what did she say when you, when you told her that it did so well? Well, she was there. She was in the audience. Oh, she came over. Of course, yeah. What did she, 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 what did she make that. of it? I think at first it was difficult. I, I, I'm guessing. I'm mm-hmm. assuming this. She didn't say this, but um, she's never been one to just, you know, be ultra supportive no matter what. Mm-hmm. Like, if I suck, she's going to say, you know, that wasn't so great. Mm-hmm. I think next time you should try and fix that or work on that part of, yeah. you know, what you're doing. Yeah. Or if it's good, or, you know, she would say, like, that element of what you did was excellent. Mm-hmm. And so she's always been brutally honest mm-hmm. <laughs> um and i respect that and and i and i really really appreciate it um and so with this i mean a she um was very impressed by Yoon's performance mm-hmm. um because i had been telling her because it mattered to her there was this person who was going to portray her in some some way in some to some capacity although it's not her mm-hmm. it's inspired by her so mm-hmm. she wanted to want to make sure that this was going well and, mm-hmm. and I kept telling her I said you know don't worry it's 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 great mm-hmm. she's she's really nailing it um and so what she saw she really thought like was it, she she thought it was an incredible performance um she was really blown away by the the technical elements as well oh yeah um, cause like the story and the acting yeah. and these, these are things that she's grown up, like see me like as, as I grown up, like seeing that evolution, see me do it many times. But I think for her to see the, uh, technical elements of it that really worked like the cinematography and the editing and the music, she was, I think she was really impressed by that. Um, but that's kind of all she said. And, and, and I feel like. It's a little too close to home yeah. for certain people. Yeah, um, I got that sense when I, when my, when our, my mom's friends, our family friends, are the the, the 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 moms and dads of like the other Korean immigrant families that we grew up with that are more fa- that I spent more time with than my actual family mm-hmm. and relatives in Korea. So, you know, they saw it too, and and it meant a lot to me that you know I tried. Do just by them, serve them, you know, serve mm-hmm. their stories as well, um, and of course they were as proud as can be mm-hmm. that someone from our community mm-hmm. made a film. Yeah, but it might be a bit, it might be a bit close to home. But they, yeah, but it was. I think it. If it wasn't me that made this, I don't know if they would. I don't know how they would have responded. I think they might have been a little turned off because I mm-hmm. think it's. 
it's so immediate. It's so, it's so, it's a little soon. Yeah. It's a little too soon. This is about, we're talking about something that these people experienced 20 years ago. And are still experiencing. You know, they're, they're not, they're not looking back. They're not on out their, of that no, life. They're no. still there. They're living that life still. Um, it's, I think it's evoking questions that maybe they're not necessarily wanting to acknowledge at this point in their lives. Um, it's a beautiful film. Thank you. Uh, you're up for like every Canadian Screen Award. No, I'm not. No, yeah, no. Clement is. Uh, the movie Brothers up for every award. We're up for some of the awards. You're up for a couple of, yeah. a, 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 a handful of Canadian Screen Awards. Yes. Answer me this. If you win yeah. and you get up. Which award? Take your pick. Say if you win and yeah. you get up. Yeah. Who's the first person you're going to think? Well, I first would thank the Canadian Screen Awards, okay, the, the sure, members, you know, sure, for voting because, sure. you know, that's – I think that's the right okay, thing to okay, do. Sure. Thank the people who are who are giving me the award. But I, the last person I would thank would be my would be my mom and dad. Yeah. Because they, they – I, I, I don't do this. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not who I am today if it wasn't for them. This film doesn't exist without without them and what they've done for me. So – it's really beautiful, man. Congratulations on it. I really love watching it. Thank you. I'm glad you liked it. It's my conversation with Rice Boy Sleeps director Anthony Shim. The film is in select theaters now. If it's screening near you, I really do recommend you go to see it. It's really beautiful. Anthony is nominated for Achievement in Directing at the Canadian Screen Awards, and the film is up for Best Motion Picture as well. Hello, this is Gregory Porter, and you're listening to Q with Tom Power. Unreroute the rivers, let the damned water beep. There's some people down the way that's thirsty, so let the liquid spirit free. Clap your hands now. Go ahead and clap your hands now. Clap your hands now. Go ahead and clap your hands now. Mm-hmm. All right, I want to talk to you about a really powerful documentary. It's called And Still I Sing. And it's about, well, on the surface, it's about a reality show, like the type of reality show you might be familiar with. Afghan Star, which is like the American idol of Afghanistan. But like, what's at stake in season 14 of Afghan Star is a lot more than just being the best singer in Afghanistan. It's also the story of one of the judges, Ariana Saeed. She's one of Afghanistan's biggest music stars. She's been called like the Celine Dion of Afghanistan. And you see Ariana's struggles as a singer, the death threats she's faced, having to leave Afghanistan and everyone she loves. So we were uh, lucky enough that Ariana Saeed actually came into our studio back in 2022 along with the director of the film, Fazila Amiri. And I think a lot about this conversation and I've thought a lot about it since, especially when Ariana told me the story of her leaving Afghanistan. I can't get some of those images out of my mind. Here's our conversation. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us, Tom. It's lovely it's to have you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you very much for having us. Congra- Pleasure. Congratulations on the film. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. It's one of my favorite shows, oh. and uh, this is the moment. Start, start, start me here. Like, just for some context, how big a deal is uh, Afghan Star, both in, in the country and for folks living outside of the country? 
It's one of Afghanistan's most popular reality singing talent TV show. Um, I would say it's one of the most uh, iconic and most uh, this monument of post-Taliban identity of the country. You know, because in Afghanistan, we don't have uh, much entertainment or cinema. Uh, so families, uh, largely, they just love watching television. And so these uh, post-Taliban reality shows, music, uh, TV series, pop stars coming into the country uh, really brought this very positive change and inspired millions of Afghan youth um, to, you know, showcase their talents. Uh, so it's one of the most uh, beloved show in the country. As, as a director, how did you find out about the story that was sort of happening within season 14 of the show? So basically, when I uh, returned to Afghanistan, I really wanted to uh, focus, make a film about the role of women singers in, in the society, because we have a lot of male singers and a lot of different forms of music. But there's, there are only a few number of women singers who have made history. And one of those artists were Ariana Said, mm -hmm. who returned to the country from diaspora. And she was working really hard to rebuild music industry and uh, teach new talents and uh, be inspiration for millions of Afghan women. And also, uh, conservatives were pretty much against her all the time. So all she was time. fighting through patriarchy, and that was something that I wanted to preserve. Um, so I think it was important to make a documentary film featuring her story and incredible new talent that was coming in from the country. Ariana, I want to bring you in here. So, uh, A, you just got back from a tour yeah. uh, in the U.S., and you just you just flew in from Vegas. So yes. thanks, thanks for being here at all. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's a lot colder here. It is, but. absolutely. It was a major change from, from Vegas <laughs> to this weather. It was like crazy, but I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to Thank have you. you. Uh, just following up there, so you're known as the voice of Afghanistan, which can be taken a couple of ways, right? <laughs> One is the this incredible voice that you have mm -hmm. as your as your instrument that you, as you <laughs> sing, but also as, as as was mentioned there, the, the voice that you have for, for women, the voice that you have for, for you know, folks that have been underrepresented in Afghanistan, where does that come from in you? How did that start in you? I, I think um, I've taken it from my family. I have a strong family of um, uh, family of a lot of women. I have six sisters and my mom uh, was a brilliant, uh, wonderful, strong woman. And it's the background, I think, and the fact that um, I've experienced and seen a lot in my life since chi childhood. I was eight years old when we left Afghanistan during the war and became refugees and um seen a lot right and 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 i've experienced a lot with with afghan women uh starting from my surroundings from my family to relatives to neighbors and everything and i know what kind of uh horrible life women have in afghanistan you know as much as it's about music and and everything it's it's more for a cause as well yeah. uh that i like to use my platform and it, it goes without saying that this Using your voice and uh, as part of the platform to, to help women in Afghanistan yes. has come at a considerable cost to you. Absolutely. Um, from from the first year when I I actually went back to, back to Afghanistan in 2011 after uh, the fall of Taliban and uh, I started doing these music uh, shows and talent shows. I I became a judge on the Voice of Afghanistan and uh, since I was this woman who inspired a lot of women in Afghanistan and I always told them that they should ask for their rights and and everything so i be 
directly became a target of, of the priests, the mullahs and then the Taliban uh, as well. They didn't like me because of what I stood for and because of the fact that I wanted women to, to wake up. So it, it, costs, it costed me a lot, actually. I became a target uh, to the point where they actually um, were announcing uh, on TV uh, stations how my head should be cut off and, yeah. and whoever cuts my head off, uh, they can go to heaven. Yeah. And uh, became a target of Taliban at the same time and uh, Fazila knows I was going through a very, very tough time in Afghanistan. When you signed up to do this show, I mean, you had done a couple of seasons. So you had done season 11. Yes. And you had done season 12. Mm -hmm. But then in season 14, which is with the, where these two women we're going to talk about mm -hmm. today were, were featured as the lead contestants, mm -hmm. did you get an idea that in season 14, in this season, something different was happening? Absolutely. I mean, the, when I participate, when I uh, took part in these shows, the, the first change that uh, that uh, came with that was the fact that a lot of girls were participating in the shows, which was very rare, which was very new. Before I became a judge, there was almost no girls in Wh these shows. Why is that? Because it's a conservative country and girls uh, are afraid of, of being shown on TV um, and conservative families, they're not allowed to become singers. And, you know, female singers are being uh, always being looked down upon in Afghanistan, unfortunately. And uh, that's a big fact. And but uh, my presence in this show was making a huge amount of difference. The fact that girls were daring uh, to come and participate despite all the problems, that was a big deal. And so um, during this, uh, this um, season 14, um, these girls, uh, when they participated, I was hoping and I was helping them uh, to see if we can get one girl to win finally, you know, like 14 seasons. And this time around, um, this, this sweet girl, Zahra Ilham, she was a good singer and I was happy for her to win. Zahra Ilham, I'm Tom Power, and this is the winner of Afghan Star Season 14, Zahra Ilham, singing on the show. You're listening to my conversation with the filmmaker of the documentary, And Still I Sing, Fazila Amiri. Joining her is Ariana Saeed, who has been called the voice of Afghanistan and was a judge on season 14 of Afghan Star. I asked Ariana what struck her about the two young women who were competing, Zahra Elham and Sadiqa Madhadgar. They're very daring, you know, um, and, and isn't it Fazila John? They, 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 they're girls with big dreams. Yeah. They wanted to do things differently, different than, than other women out there. And they had this, this um, what passion and drive, passion too. and drive in, in, in them. Uh, and that made them very different, you know. Uh, those two girls, especially because they are from uh, different ethnic background too. So mm -hmm. there was not only threats because of their gender, but there was also like a lot of threats because they were Hazaras and Hazaras have been a marginalized community. So seeing that, uh, I love their ambition and how they were adamant to win the show mm -hmm. for the first time and make history. And that's because Ariana was there and they were empowering each other. And that was really inspiring to be there and capture. Uh, Ariana, there's a, there's a really powerful scene in the film where, and I know you haven't seen it. Can I spoil it? Yes. <laughs> there's, a really, there's a really powerful scene in the film right. where it shows a mural that, that was painted of you. Yes. But there, your, your mouth has been sort of painted yes. over. Yeah. Can, can you tell me a little bit about seeing that? It was crazy. Um, 
you know what that that was expected to be honest with you i didn't expect any anything else than that because of the fact that you know um i'm probably one of the most loved and one of the most hated uh female artists in afghanistan fazila would agree with that um they actually um try to erase you erase and, me yeah and, and and paint you over and pay, yeah. yeah it also i think showed the how much support you had you know these artists creating a mural of you <laughs> There was a momentum in Afghanistan where there was dialogue. There was, uh, you know, uh, we were allowed to sing. We were allowed to make mm. movies. But there was also criticism from the a conservative lot. part yeah. of the society. Yeah. But now, unfortunately, mm. it's yeah. not the case. Let, yeah. Let's talk more about that. So tell me a little bit about what was happening politically in Afghanistan while this season was airing. Uh, so we, when we were filming, uh, it was 2019, and that's uh, all uh, were happening at the backdrop of the United States and uh, Donald Trump signing a peace deal. That peace deal was really upsetting for the all Afghan people because the U.S. wasn't uh, talking with the Afghan government. Uh, there was no participation of women in these talks. So it was very concerning, especially for women, because... They didn't want to go back to the darker times because our our uh, previous generation have experienced life under the Taliban. You know, I left the country when when the Taliban first came to power, and I was very uh, happy that uh, women singers like Ariana and other women activists were raising their voice. You know, and they were the only ones that they do not want these peace talks at first place. Uh, let alone giving them the whole country back. Oh and so God. that was the whole political backdrop of making this film. And then, and, and uh, Fazila, flash forward to August of last year, the United States withdraws from Afghanistan, the 20-year war ends, and the Taliban regains power within a week. You were, you were in post when this, when, like you were in the middle of making the documentary in post? Yeah, I yeah. had my fine cut ready, and uh, I was about to submit it to some festivals. Um, the, the, the interesting part was that I wanted the film to end on a hopeful note. And that's what the film was about, you know, this girl winning for the first time this big show. And uh, even though there was patriarchy, we had momentum for progress and change. So that was the message of the film. But then suddenly everything happened at such a fast speed. Ariana was on the ground watching these things firsthand. I cannot imagine the magnitude of pain and suffering and trauma that everyone went through in that month. Uh, per- yeah. Perhaps the most moving and powerful part of the film is when, Ariana, you, you describe and you show you, you having to leave very, very quickly. Yes. As much, I understand how traumatic that must have been, and it, only as much as you want to. Like, can you tell me a little bit more about that? It was just very heartbreaking. Um, I spent so much of my time in Afghanistan trying to bring change, try to bring some positivity. And I was I was so hopeful that even to the last very moment I was in Afghanistan and um, it just happened overnight. And I got stuck there actually for two days when Taliban um, gained power. Mm-hmm. And of course, since I am I am a target, I, I was in a complete shock. I didn't know what to do. I was hiding. We um, finally found a way to get out of Kabul and one of the American army um, planes, uh, C-17, they actually helped us get out of Afghanistan. You had to hide yourself. I had, to, I had to hide myself. I was uh, covered top to toe, um, wearing a hijab and everything. But still, it, it was quite dangerous. I feel like I have a second life, to be honest with you. I, I thought for me, that was it.
I came face to face with a group of Taliban at the, at, outside the airport the night when we were trying to escape. And of course, thanks to COVID, the, the mask and everything that helped me because I could hide under it. Um, but I was afraid uh, for my fiance because my fiance is also uh, a known face. Mm-hmm. And um, Taliban, if they don't stop a woman and ask for the face to be revealed, they can ask a man any minute to, okay, show me a face. I just feel so blessed that I'm here and I'm talking to you right now. It's, it's just unbelievable to me. I feel quite blessed that you're here as well. It is such an, uh, an honor to meet you. It is such a, a pleasure to get to speak to the two of you. And thank you so much for this incredible work. Thank, thank you so you. much thanks for, for having, having us. us. And thanks for watching the film too. It is a really beautiful film. I, I, I can't say enough about it. I really would love for you to check it out. It's available on Amazon Prime. It's called And Still I Sing. Fazila Amiri is the director of the documentary. She joined me in studio with the singer Ariana Saeed, who's been called the voice of Afghanistan. All right, that is it for the show today. Thanks so much for tuning in or streaming or downloading, however you get this. Thanks so much to everyone who makes this show possible. Uh, Ben Edwards, Vanessa Greco, Sarah Melton, Vanessa Nigro, Gloria Omoteo, Mitch Pollack, Caitlin Swan, and Jennifer Warren are the producers of Q. Our digital team is Amelia Ekbal, Shuli Grossman-Gray, and Vivian Rashad. Our show's director is Matthew Murphy. Our engineer is Sam Hashemi. Our senior producer this week was Catherine Stockhausen. And McKeegan is the executive producer of Q. My name is Tom Power. I host the show. Thanks so much for listening to it. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.